Thanks, Ryan. Kenny, you can come up here. We're gonna. I'm gonna introduce Kenny, and then we're gonna pray for him. Uh, pray for him one because this is a really difficult topic, uh, one that needs a smart guy like Kenny to break it down. I'm glad I'm not the one who's gonna be up here for the next 30 minutes. And then two, Kenny needs prayer. Kenny, if you don't know, he's a huge Phillies fan. That's they right. just are down what three two now? Three two. Three two. So we'll pray that Kenny <coughs> can sanctified. work through this. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's sanctifying him. Um, so I'm excited to, for you guys to hear from him. I got a couple fun facts for Kenny here. So Kenny, if you didn't know, he's actually hosted a TED Talk. You can look it up on YouTube. It has over 100,000 views. Pretty impressive from Kenny there. Kenny has a podcast, Theology for the Rest of Us. Sounds like he's doing some vlogging. Or not vlogging. Vlogging, yeah. Vlogging. Both. Big difference there. Yeah. But vlogging and may, maybe some vlogging as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, he used to run a major fantasy football podcast as well. So if you guys... Need some help on your fantasy football teams. <laughs> Kenny is your guy. Um, he's a great follow on social media. If you're looking for some good memes, memes, Kenny always seems to find them. Kenny is a self-proclaimed huge Taylor Swift fan. Um, and can do an unbelievable rendition of Taylor Swift's You Belong With Me. In the Q&A, if you want to ask him to do that, feel free. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. He'll hop up here and do it. Uh, so Kenny's a pastor at Cities, professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He's a great teacher. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be under Kenny at City's Church. Uh, it's been a real blessing, and I'm excited for you to hear from him today. So, Kenny, we'll pray for you before thank we God. get going. Dear Lord, uh, thank you so much for Kenny and just the, the gifts and the wisdom that you've uh, given to him, Lord. And it, it's not Kenny, it's you working through Kenny. So we're thankful for that. We're thankful that uh, in a world that is tossing so many different ideas and, and seem to be truths at us, Lord, that we can know where the real truth comes from, Lord, and that's your word. So we're thankful for your word. May it be what we always go to uh, every morning. May we meditate on it day and night, um, and I pray that today uh, you would be glorified in Kenny's talk. Uh, would his words be in alignment with your word, Lord? Um, we're thankful for this night. May we glorify you in it. We love you. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Dawson. I have a privilege of serving as one of the pastors at Cities Church and a professor at Bethlehem. Uh, I'm also a PhD student at Midwestern Seminary, and uh, I love being a nerd, <clears throat> and so I, I own that. And sometimes you got to just be nerdy. It's okay. It's been many years since I've been a fantasy football expert, but uh, anyone, if you want to chat, I'm glad to do so. But I don't think I can promise a Taylor Swift rendition tonight. I don't think that's my alley there. Uh, I'm originally born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've had the chance to live all over the United States over the last several years. I lived in Orlando, Florida for four and a half years. I was a youth pastor. You're like, oh, we could tell. We knew. You, had been, you were a youth pastor. And uh, I've been here now for almost six years living in the Twin Cities. And I've been married for the last two and a half years. And that child you hear is my child. Letty. She's the cutest thing you've ever met. Uh, I am biased, uh, but it's true. She's the cutest thing you've ever met. But, um, I'm excited to be here. Thank you to Dawson and Peter and Nick and uh, Mike and the other guys that are here, the pastors here at Vertical. I know there's multiple pastors at Vertical here. 
Uh, thank you. I, I'm excited to be here. And we count, at Cities Church, we count Vertical Church as sort of like a like-minded church in the Twin Cities. Anyone who tells us, tells me they end up at Vertical Church, I'm excited for them. And so i gotten to know Chris, uh, Pastor Chris a little bit and just excited for the ministry God is doing through this church and excited for the young adults of Cities and the young adults at Vertical to get to connect on occasion in moments like this. That's exciting. <clears throat> Tonight, I'm going to, most of my content, I'm actually borrowing from a book that I did not write. So I'm, the 80, 90% of what I say, I am borrowing or regurgitating from a book that I read uh, several years ago, uh, almost about two years ago now, actually, by a man by the name of Carl Truman. He is a historical theologian, teaches at Grove City College, relatively well-known, has written a bunch of books, and he recently wrote a book in late 2020 called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he, in essence, is surveying the last two or 300 years of Western history to sort of kind of chronicle or highlight how we got to where we are today. That's what he does in that book. When I read it, uh, I read it and I thought it was absolutely fantastic, but it was hard to get through, if I'm honest. Um, it's like 440-some pages, uh, small print, thick, and a lot of $5 words. There's just, just hard to get through. And I, it's probably, I think it's about 200,000 words, and it's written at a graduate level. And I read it, and it took me a while to get through, and I thought to myself, this is excellent, but gosh, I, I sure wish he would write a simpler version of this and distill it, because I just think most people won't want to try to get through this, through this kind of crazy level type book. Uh, only true nerds would want to read this. And so I found out a few months later, he actually came out with a distilled version of it. It's about 45,000 words and a lot less $5 words built into the book. And that's the book that's, that's, some of you guys have it, A Strange New World. And so he took his big work and distilled it down to Strange New World, which I think is a really, really helpful resource to the body of Christ. I've not read the smaller one. I've just kind of barely skimmed it a bit, uh, but got a chance to read the thicker one and really excited. So I think that would be a helpful resource. And so what I'm going to hope to do is just kind of take a bunch of that, that content and distill it down even more so, give you kind of just big highlights, and hopefully that will be helpful to you. Um, as you eventually kind of read the book on your own <clears throat> um, in the coming you know, months and, and weeks, if you have the time to do that. Before we dive into Truman's work, though, I want to kind of just take a step back. Uh, Dawson actually said something a moment ago that I thought was really helpful, and that's the reminder that we want to view the world through the lens of the gospel. And if you're here at an event like this on a Friday night, the assumption could be that you've heard the gospel. And that's probably true for most of the people in the room. But I do not want to assume that's the case for everyone in the room. So I want to pause for a moment, and I want to articulate this thing we call the gospel message or the gospel narrative and explain how that ties to what Carl Truman's work is all about. We believe that there is a God. If you are here and you believe that there is a God, raise your hand. Okay, great. That's most of us. Excellent. Good chance now. <clears throat> so we believe that there is a God. And the God of the Bible, the God that the Bible talks about or conveys for us is a God who is Trinitarian, meaning he exists in three persons. God exists in a fashion or in a way that we do not. I am Kenny Ortiz. I am one being existing in one person. God, however, exists in three persons. One God, one mind, one essence existing in three distinct persons, and it is beyond the human brain to fully comprehend that reality. But for all of eternity, before we ever existed, the members of the Trinity, God in and of himself, had a community. Father, Son, and Spirit were hanging out together, 
loving one another, enjoying one another, gushing love over one another. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in Oklahoma. He refers to it as the spiral of delight. Now, that's a very cheesy term. I recognize that. But I think it's got a beautiful element to it. Hey, this spiral of delight, this idea that the Father, Son, and the Spirit were loving each other for all of eternity past before any of us ever existed. And God, in his mind, determined that he would create humanity, you and I, he would create us and then invite us into that spiral where we would experience the love and community that God had been experiencing within himself for all of eternity. So God said, I'm going to make you and I'm going to invite you in to experience something that will bring you incredible pleasure and delight. And so he invites us to delight in him, to delight in the Trinity. God makes humans, Adam and Eve, in a garden. They were real people, by the way. Adam and Eve were actual human beings living on planet Earth. And they made a very foolish decision to betray God. They sinned and they brought upon themselves the consequences of that sin. And what entered into humanity, the, the, the thing, this thing we call sin was sort of like a spiritual cancer or a disease, a plague that enters the human race and it wreaks havoc on the souls of humanity. And all of us who are born, who are born with this stain, this spiritual disease that Adam brought upon himself. So we are born into sin. We are sinners by nature. And all of us choose to sin, so we are sinners by choice as well. We are sinners by nature and by choice, and we deserve the wrath of God. God could have looked at humanity and said to us, to hell with you, literally. And God would not have been wrong if he chose to do that. God would have been well within his right to justly punish us for what we had chosen to do, to betray him. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, God says that's not going to be the end of the story. The end of the story could be we sinned, we're condemned, we go to hell forever. That could have been the end of the story. In fact, you could argue that should have been the end of the story. But God says, no, no, no. That will not be the end of the story. I love them so much. I so desperately want them to experience the spiral of delight that I will make a way for them to be saved. And so God himself becomes a man, lives under the curse of sin, takes sin on himself, and he dies a wicked death on a cross, a Roman cross. And God says to all of us, I've got an offer for you. Come on, let's, let's bargain. Let's, let's make a deal. You believe on me and I will take your sins and put them on Jesus at the cross. His death, the punishment he endured, will count for you if you would believe. And to vindicate Jesus, to prove that his offer is real, to have victory over death, God the Father raises God the Son from the dead. Jesus physically comes back from the dead and has victory over sin, death, and the grave. He says, I have defeated those things. If you would believe on me, Jesus says, you will be forgiven of your sins and you'll be invited back 
to where you should have been all along, in relationship with God the Father, enjoying him forever. Enjoying him forever. That's the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, and that we can be saved from the wrath of God if we would put our faith in him. That's the truth. My assumption is that many of you here this evening already believe that to be true and have embraced that. If you are here this evening and that is not you, I want to implore you, exhort you, challenge you to believe the gospel. Believe that that is true and say, yes, God, I believe that. Would you have mercy on me? Would you forgive me? Would you allow the death of Jesus to count for my sins? Would you do that tonight? And if you have any questions of what that means afterwards, I'd love to talk to you one-on-one. What does it mean to believe the gospel and to, and to become a, what we would call a Christian? If you have any questions about that, I'd love to have a conversation with you afterwards. What does that have to do with Carl Truman and the, the book, Rise and Triumph, the Modern Self? Well, the gospel is preached, and a part of the implications of the gospel is that God is restoring all things. The world we live in is broken because of the sin of Adam. And because of our continual choices of sin, we have caused lots of brokenness in the world in which we live. And that then begins to pervert or twist or break our desires and our outlooks. And a part of the gospel implication, a part of the message of the gospel and the ministry that outflows of the gospel is us proclaiming that God has made a way for us to be restored, that there is a way that God has created for humans to live. And if we live outside of that, we will continue to cause more damage to ourselves and those around us. That if we truly want to be fulfilled in God and experience the delight he has for us, we are to follow his commands. God has given us structure for how humans are to behave and live. He has given us wisdom that ought to govern the society in which we are in. He has given us wisdom that ought to govern how we view sexuality and relationships. And therefore, if we believe the gospel, we have to also allow the gospel to inform how we think about these implications, these other areas. There are some Christians that will preach the gospel as if it's only something you believe and then it has no implications or minimal. But if you genuinely believe the gospel, it must have implications. If I truly believe that God became a man and died for me, then I must believe also that it is not okay for me to continue on in the brokenness that demanded his death. I have to believe that I'm not going to allow behavior to continue that needed the Son of God to die. I'm not going to go along with that. I want to embrace the wisdom that God has because I believe the gospel. And that's why we do this. Some people say, well, just preach the gospel. Don't get involved in these topics. But if you believe the gospel, you can't get away from these types of topics as well. I want to pray, and then we'll dive into Truman's content. Lord, we come to you again, Father in heaven, merciful one, Thank you for your opportunity you've given us to meet here. Would you use my words tonight to glorify yourself in the lives of these individuals? God, we love you. Help us to love you more. My love for you feels so small sometimes. God, would you cultivate in me a greater love for you? Would you do that for all of us, I pray. Amen. If I stood up here and said to you, 
I am a caterpillar trapped in a cereal box. You would say to me, I have no clue what you're talking about right now. I don't have a category in my brain to understand that statement, Kenny. I have no idea what you're saying. <clears throat> That's exactly how people would have felt 10 years ago, 20 years ago, in most parts of the United States of America, if, you had said to them, if someone said to them, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. 20 years ago, people would say to you, I have no clue what you're talking about. I don't have a category in my brain to understand those English words that just came from your mouth. But today, in 2022, in most parts of the Western world, and certainly in pretty much everywhere in the United States, if you make that statement today, we all have a category in our brain to process that statement. And most Americans will just say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. You just, you know, you were born in the wrong body. That's what most Americans would think, or lots of Americans would think. But not too long ago, the statement, I am a man trapped in a woman's body, would have been incomprehensible to people. Go ahead. And so this is what Carl Truman is chronicling. How did, how did we get here from just where we were 10, 20, 25 years ago? How did we get from that to where we are today, where we are using pronouns in our Twitter bios, or you are seen as a bigot if you refuse to acknowledge that someone's biological sex and their internal gender are, uh, do, are not necessarily the same? We went from where we were 20 years ago to where we are today. And it seems like Carl Truman makes the case early in the book, in his book, Rise and Triumph, Modern Self, he makes the case that uh, this actually didn't happen quickly. It feels like this happened overnight, just in the last few years. This is a revolutionary change. And he actually says, he's actually, it's been about 300 years in the making. It's actually been evolving. And it just recently has kind of propped up in a unique way, in a way that is startling to many Americans, but it's actually been happening for quite a bit of time. And so that is, in essence, what Carl Truman is talking about. Truman relies a lot on the work of a guy by the name of Philip Reif. Uh, Philip Reif was a sociologist, relatively well-known sociologist throughout the 1900s. He died in the early 2000s. He did most of his writing in the 50s and 60s. And he wasn't a Christian, but he was sort of a prophet because in the 60s, he was making predictions as to where he thought American society was going to go based on the last 200 years of, of what had been happening. And his predictions are, I mean, almost spot on, almost perfect. It's, it's, actually, it's, it's, it's very eerie and weird, it's scary, actually. He would say, listen, I've seen this coming. In the 60s, he is saying, here's where American society is going. <clears throat> and he's talking about this. So Philip Reif, as Tr Truman is using Reif's work in his book, Reif talks about the idea of mimesis versus poesis, um, <clears throat> or the mimetic versus the poesis, or the poetic. And so the mimetic worldview, I'll explain, I'll define that. The mimetic worldview is the view that says there is an objective standard, there's something that's right or wrong out here, and we should all conform to that. And Reif and others throughout the 20th century have kind of evaluated various societies across the world and said, there's kind of an overlap. At almost every society, there are certain things that everyone agrees are right, and almost everyone agrees certain things are wrong. Almost every society in, over the last several millennia believed that murder was wrong. Almost every society. Now, that doesn't mean that they stop murder all that well or that people don't murder. Certainly people do murder, but there's a general consensus that murder is bad. And so that's kind of this idea. There's this, and there, there's a list of things that Reef has said, hey, here are these things. When you go from society to society, 
there's these lists of things that everyone seems to agree are, are bad, that we should outlaw or we should limit or restrict. And this, there seems to be the sense that everyone inherently knows some of the things that are right or wrong. Uh, C.S. Lewis called this the Tao, this idea that when you go throughout various societies, there's this understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Some people would refer to this as natural law. Thomas Aquinas in the medieval era wrote extensively about the idea of natural law. And that is, there are certain things that are hardwired into humanity to know that they are right or they are wrong. And then theologians throughout the Reformation era have, in essence, said, yes, we know what's inherently right, but the more we sin, we then begin to sear our conscience. Our, our conscience gets dull and dull and dull to the point where we've sinned so much where we no longer can identify what's right or wrong. Or the things that we know we're wrong, we're now perfectly fine with. We no longer feel guilty. This is kind of the idea. So Philip Reeves says there have been throughout world history, there's been mimetic societies. These are societies that say, we all, here's, there's an objective thing. That's bad. That's good. All of us need to change our behavior to come in line with that. Philip Reeves talks about first worlds. So kind of ancient Greek culture, ancient Roman culture, and lots of other cultures across the ancient world that would say, we have a moral standard. They were often built on pagan realities, pagan philosophy, or, or myths. But they still had a moral objective standard. We, all have to, we, have to now, we have to change ourselves to this. And if you want to do something that's against this, then you have to change. That's kind of the first worlds. The second worlds that Philip Reef talks about are also mimetic. These are societies that are religious, overtly religious. So Christian nations, even Muslim nations would fall into this category. These are people that agree with the first world. So first worlds are saying, here's an objective reality, but it's based in pagan philosophy or natural law or something like that, where second worlds are saying, there's a moral objective reality. We all must conform to that. And that thing is the Bible or in a Muslim context, the Quran, right? So the first worlds are pagan, the second worlds are religious, but they still agree that there's a moral standard we must all adhere to. Philip Reef, though, in the 60s says, America is headed to a post-memetic society, which he calls the poetic or poetic society. This is the poesis. He's like, this is a society, what he calls the third worlds. This is a society that has no objective moral standard at its core. Everyone gets to determine their own thing. And in the 1960s, people said, Philip Reef, you're crazy. That'll never happen in America. Today, we're like, well, of course, the, duh, like that, that's the obvious. But in the 60s, the 50s and 60s, that seemed radical. And Philip Reef saying, we are headed in this direction. And Truman has been chronically saying, we are now at this place where there is no objective center standard. He's like, in a country that's pagan or Muslim, they're actually better off than where we are. Because at least while Muslims have a false religion, and while pagans have false ideas, and you could be damned to hell for those things, obviously, but at least their societies are better off because they at least have a moral objective standard that you can appeal to. And, in the, and we've lost that over the course of the 20th century. <clears throat> Truman then outlines how we lost those things. I'm going to give you the, there are three major movements or three major streams that took place starting in the 1700s all the way through the 1900s. And I want to kind of highlight them very quickly for you. These three, they're separate movements, but they kind of coalesce in the late 1900s in the United States to kind of lead us to where we are today. The, the modern self, the rise and triumph of how people view themselves today is, is the sum of these three streams. They are the romantic self, the plastic self, 
and the sexual self. The modern self is the combination of three other streams, the romantic self, the plastic self, the sexual self. And simultaneously, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there's a movement called emotivism, which comes to rise around the same time as the plastic self and sexual self are coming. And so these three streams, they come together, and then this thing called emotivism, they kind of get put in the mix, and that causes an explosion to where we are today in the United States. Let me explain to you what the romantic self is first. In the 1700s, a man by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, if you're a philosophy, if you're taking a philosophy class, you're probably familiar with Rousseau to some extent. Rousseau in the mid-1700s comes along. He's a French philosopher, and he's an academic elitist type, and he comes along and says, actually, I don't think Catholics are right when they say humans are sinful. I actually think humans are naturally good, and the only reason we're sinful is because you keep telling them they're sinful. If you stop telling them they're sinful, they'll stop being sinful. That's what Rousseau said. People are intrinsically good. And he says, there's so many things that people want to do, but these religious people keep telling them that it's selfish to do those things. I don't think it's selfish to seek your own pleasure. I think that's self-love. And here's what happens. In the 1700s, this is radical, crazy, out-of-the-box thinking. But here's what happens in all of these movements. It takes one person to say it, and it's appalling at first. It's shocking. Whoa! And then the second time it's said, it's like, well, I've already heard that before. It's not as shocking. And the third or fourth time people hear it, they go, well, you know, I don't really agree with that, but maybe he's right. And the fifth or sixth time you hear it, you begin to go, well, let me consider if he's right. It takes one personality to say it boldly. It's shocking. Sometimes that person gets killed, kind of like a Socrates-type personality. Right, for those of you familiar with Socrates and Plato, like, so Socrates is saying these crazy things, he gets killed, but then Plato and Aristotle after him kind of keep on his legacy and they, they teach a lot of similar things. And it's not as crazy. They're not, they're not going to kill Plato or Aristotle because someone has already died for it and it kind of normalizes the ideas. This is exactly what we saw in the 1930s with Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler in the early 1930s says, it's the Jews' fault. People are like, whoa. If you read, if you read primary source material, from Europe in the, early in the early 1930s, people are shocked and appalled by Hitler's choice of words. And then a year later, it's not so bad. And a couple of years later, people begin to go, well, maybe it is a Jew's fault. It takes one personality to say it. It's shocking. The shock wears off. And then people kind of begin to, well, maybe you're right. Once someone that seems authoritative says something, there's a probability that people will begin to say, at least give it a chance. This happened in 2009 when Obamacare was passed. When the Obamacare legislation was passed, only 41% of Americans were in favor of it. It passed. A few days later, Gallup showed a poll that 48% of Americans were in favor of it. And within a year, over 60%. The, the fact that it passed, the fact that it was endorsed by the Congress and the President of the United States, at that time President Obama, it, it was enough for Americans to go, well, it's probably not that bad. The same with Obergefell in 2015 when the Obergefell decision legalized uh, same-sex marriage across the United States. Right? Less than 40% of Americans were in favor of it. Within two or three months, over 50% of Americans are okay with it. Things change rapidly when one personality makes bold claims, and that's what Jacques Rousseau is doing in the 1700s in France. He's making these bold claims going, actually, I don't think it's selfish to do your own thing. Jacques Rousseau lived this out. He had multiple kids and abandoned all of them. He says, I, I want to have sex without responsibilities or consequences. So I'm going to have sex who I want. And if you get pregnant, that's up to you to figure it out. 
It's, and it's not selfish to do this. I love myself. What I want matters most. That was shocking in 1700s, not so shocking in America in 2022. Maybe to some extent, still a little shocking, right? There's all these philosophers in the 16 and 1700s. So guys like Rousseau, John Locke, Rene Descartes, Thomas Hobbes, Immanuel Kant, Hume, Hegel, Adam Smith, Voltaire, Spinoza. There's all these well-known philosophers in the uh, 17 to 18th centuries. But all of their writings were kind of at academic level. Like the average person living in Europe wasn't reading their stuff. Okay? What it takes usually in society for things to go from academic elitist conversations to the kind of the, 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 the typical rank and file type personality, right? Those of us who are normal people walking down the street, is usually you need these ideas that are up here to filter down. And the way they filter down throughout Western history over the last 300 years is through entertainment and media. It's always the way. So in the early 1800s, there's a group of people known as the Romantic Poets. Maybe you're familiar with them. The Romantics, kind of in the wake of the French Revolution. They're writing poems, and many of them had been trained philosophers at universities reading Rousseau, and poetry was the media of the... It was the TikTok of 1812, right? Poetry was. People were sitting around reading poetry on a Friday night, drinking a beer or having espresso or whatever Europeans do, bread with olive oil. I don't know. That's my idea of Europeans. Right? And this is what they start doing. They start writing poems that begin to ask questions like this. What if I could marry someone I loved? Now, maybe that seems radical. That doesn't seem radical to you. But in the mid-1700s and the early 1800s, that was a radical idea. If you're living in a small town in 1840 in a small farming community in mid-France somewhere, you didn't, you didn't ever ask the question, oh, am I going to marry someone I love? You're going to marry the one person in your town that's your age, and that's it. <laughs> you're... The, you know, the idea that you're going to fall in love and get married did not exist almost anywhere in the world, in the Western world, for most of Western history. I mean, there are little bits here and there. Uh, throughout Western history, the idea was you choose to marry someone, and then uh, you grow in love for all the days of your life with that person. In 2010, I was in India. And I had a conversation with a man there who had an arranged marriage, very prominent in India, a Christian man. And I was talking to him about it. I said, oh, what is it like to have an arranged marriage? A stupid question uh, when you're in India to ask someone. And he said, what do you mean? What, like, he just didn't have, he didn't. He's like, yeah, you Americans, you choose who you marry. He's that's so foolish. This no, is what he said to me. He goes, no, no one who is college age has the wisdom to know who to pick. That's what he said. That's what he told me. So you Americans... You fall in love, you pick to get married, and then you fall out of love and get divorced. We in India, we choose to love, and we love more and more all the days. And I thought to myself, you know, that may seem radical to average American today, but there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. I'm not advocating arranged marriage, that's what I'm doing. I'm just simply saying that there's some wisdom in this, and it seems radical to us because of what happened in the 1800s. What's going on in India seems radical to the average American because of the romantic poets. So Rousseau and others are saying these things. The poets are being, they're, they're going to college, they're reading these things, they're being influenced, and then they're writing poet, poetry that's being proliferated throughout France and Western Europe. And by the time you get to the mid-1800s, it's completely changed the way people think about relationships. For the first time ever, you have people starting, you have authors starting to write stories about meeting someone and falling in love. That was almost non-existent for most of Western literature, for most of Western history. 
like every Disney movie that exists, there would not have been a category in 1802 for the average Western European or North American person to understand a Disney movie. They wouldn't get it. If you lived in a small town, you didn't have, you didn't have options. Right? That was, what church are you going to go to? I don't know, the one church in my town. It's Presbyterian? I guess I'm Presbyterian. Like, that was it. That, that's how the world worked. The idea that I'm going to make choices based on what I want is just not something you would ever register. It would be like saying, if you said to someone, hey, what do you want in this area? Most people would just be like, I'm a caterpillar in a cereal box, what? It just, it just wouldn't make sense to, to most people. To us, it makes sense because we are in the wake of these events that took place over the course of the last 200 years. So it's helpful to know, oh, the modern self, the way we view ourselves and the world is not how most people who have loved Jesus for the last 2,000 years viewed themselves or the world. It doesn't necessarily make us wrong inherently per se, but it's valuable to pause and go, maybe some of my ideologies are rooted in modern self and not in Bible. People would ask questions like, what it would be like to fall in love with someone and the perfect person that would fulfill all of my desires? No one before 1850 asked that question. What would it be like to have passionate sex with someone with no responsibilities or consequences? Very few people would, were, were, were asking that kind of question circa 1850. Today, that's the goal of, everyone, of lots of people. Right? <clears throat> this is the start of a movement we call expressive individualism. I, I myself as an individual, I have unique desires, and I should live my life in a way that expresses what I want. It's expressive individualism. If you ask someone in the year 1340 or 1840, uh, who are you? They would give you their name, the village they lived in, the name of their wife, maybe the name of their kids, the job they have, which is what their dad did, which is what their granddad did, which is his granddad did. That's like <clears throat> People identified themselves as how they related to the external around them. Today, you ask someone, who are you? And it's all about how I feel. It's expressive individualism. Because everyone in the world has, has a relationship to external things. That doesn't make me unique, but I want to be unique. Therefore, I need to find a thing that I have that no one else has. And the only thing that I have that no one else has is my feelings. Because they're mine. My precise feelings and ideology belong to me. That's what makes me unique. So over the course of the 1800s, there's this movement. It starts in France, and then it spills over through the rest of Europe. And by the time you get to the early 1900s, it spills over to North America. This movement of saying, I identify by myself. I emphasize what's most important is what makes me different than other people, which is my feelings. Before that, before the modern self, the way I identify myself is how I relate to the external things around me. Those things define me. Now I'm defined by this thing in me that no one can argue with because it's in me. This idea of authenticity. Uh, not too long ago, I was having a conversation with someone who's a church planter, and his, the name of the church is uh, Real Church. He's like, we're real church for real people. I was, what does that mean, real? Like, what does that mean? He's like, well, you know, we're going to be authentic. We're going to be our real selves, you know? And I'm just like, bro, is Jacques Rousseau your pastor? Like, what is that? Like, you want to be authentic? What if the real self of you is a sinful jerk? No, don't be that. Don't be your authentic self. No. Your authentic self is sinful and broken and damned you to hell. 
and needed the Son of God to come and die for you. Don't be your authentic self. No, no. Ask Jesus to remake you in light of him. Don't be like your authentic self. Be like Jesus. No, don't be authentic. Yeah, we want to be honest. I get what you're saying. I, get, I understand the idea. But I just like, hey, bro, I don't think you realize how much of that is modern self. Uh, Bruce Jenner, when he came out recently, a couple years ago, as, as uh, what's his, what's his, what he calls himself now? Caitlyn Jenner. Sorry, I forgot. His, I forgot. Right? Bruce Jenner came out, and he said, all these years, I've just been confused. I didn't feel like, I've been, I was being told to be something that I wasn't myself. Now I'm my true self. Around the same time as the romantic self movement explodes, you have this thing called emotivism. And emotivism was this movement, a guy named A.J. Iyer was a philosopher that really promoted this. There were other philosophers in the late 1800s, early 1900s promoting this. Emotivism was the idea that there's actually no such thing as right or wrong. There's, there is no mimetic standard. There's no, there's no mimetic view of morality. There is no such thing as right or wrong, okay? So if you're going to express something as right or wrong, what you're really expressing is nothing more than your preference, in the book, Carl Truman says this, the statement, homosexuality is wrong, should actually be understood this way. I personally disprove of or dislike homosexuality, and you should dislike it as well. So will you as a Christian, a Bible believer that holds to traditional sexual ethic, when I say homosexuality is sinful or the, same, the action, the behavior of same-sex relationships between two men is, is wrong or sinful, what, what the gay person typically will hear is, I don't like you being gay, and you should not like you being gay. I'm saying something, and they're twisting it. Because emotivism has convinced people there's actually no right or wrong. It's all about preference. I, I worked in a context not too long ago where the, uh, where the primary leader of the organization was challenging my theology on a particular topic. And... Um, I said to him, no, I think this theology is right. I think the theology you're, you're advocating is wrong. I think it's inappropriate. I think it's sinful. I think it's against the Bible. And he said, you can't say those kind of things, Kenny. So what do you mean? He's like, you know, he's like, different. He's like, when we're reading the Bible, it's more like ice cream. Like, you know, like, I like this interpretation of the Bible. Like, I like vanilla ice cream. You like chocolate ice cream. Like, like, I like this interpretation of the Bible. You like this interpretation of the Bible. It's just preference. And I looked him right in the eyes and I said, I said, it's, it's not my preference. We're talking, about, we're talking about God's preference. It's preference. It's just not mine. So expressive individualism, the romantic self, and emotivism collide, and that thrusts us into the 1900s, and I got to go really fast. Number two, the plastic self. The plastic self is largely informed by three very popular philosophers in the late 1800s. They were contemporaries. A guy by the name of Nietzsche, Karl Marx and Charles Darwin. These three guys are writing, and they're very popular in the 1800s. Nietzsche was this famous grim atheist, a lot of self-pity and shame and brokenness, had a mental breakdown in his 40s, never recovered, died in his 50s. Really tragic, miserable life, really sad story. This guy was just angry at his Christian upbringing, and he was convinced that he was molded into thinking he was sinful because religious dogma taught him he was sinful. And he was saying, humanity, human nature is actually malleable. It's moldable. And if you tell people they're sinful, then they're going to behave sinful. And they're going to end up like me, not being able to break out of that. But if, if at a young age I was told I was good and great, then I wouldn't have turned out this way. Nietzsche was convinced of that. 
Karl Marx came along and says, people are being shaped by capitalism. You know why everyone's so greedy? Because we have a system based on greed, which makes them want to be more greedy. And he introduces the oppressed oppressor framework. And then Charles Darwin says, humans are nothing but animals. We're not unique. We're not different. There is no such thing as human nature. Humans can be molded, just like dogs can be trained. And we could breed different dogs to have different person. This kind of dog has this kind of personality. This kind of dog has this kind of personality. We can breed humans to do the same, or we can mold humans. Human, the human nature is not fixed. It's malleable, all these three guys were saying. And so there's lots of writers in the late 1800s and early 1900s that are picking up on Nietzsche, Marx, and, and Darwin, and they're starting to promote this. At the same time, you've got emotivism, expressive individualism, the romantic self, and the plastic self, all kind of come together to lead us to the 1920s. And then the last movement we have is the sexualized self. This is led primarily by a guy named the name of Sigmund Freud, many of you are familiar with. He's the father of psychoanalysis. Uh, Freud observed... He was observing sexual desires in people, and he noticed something. When people were having uh, really craving strong sexual desires, they would act out of character. They would do something that seemed out of the ordinary. Then he has this kind of light bulb moment where he goes, what if that's actually not out of character? What if that's the truth, truly them, and everything else is out of, out, of, out of character? And he came to this conclusion that sexual behavior actually exposes who you truly are, and then he says... Sex actually isn't even a behavior. It's actually who you are. You are your sexual desires, and your sexual desires are you. It's who you are. So if someone tells you your sexual desire is wrong, they're telling you you are wrong. A guy named Alfred Kinsey comes along. He does a bunch of research on prison inmates only that were all guilty of sexual crimes because he says, like Freud, they were, they were demonstrating their true self, and he does a bunch of research on them and he makes a conclusion that some of these men are more masculine than others. And some of these men go to prison and behave more masculine or less masculine after they get to prison. There's a movie about uh, Alfred Kinsley, the, Liam Neeson plays him. It's a fascinating and tragic movie if you ever want to watch it. He comes up with the Kinsey scale and he says gender is fluid, zero to six. By studying men in prison who are guilty of sexual crimes, he comes up with the idea of gender fluidity. Yes, that's literally where it started. Uh, and so he says, there's a gender fluidity. Zero being like, you're definitely a man. Six, you're definitely a woman. But like most people are somewhere like in between. A guy after them named John Money. John Money was really influenced by Kinsey. Um, John Money comes along. He's taking Kinsey's work, Freud's work. He's talking about, he's the first one to come along and say, gender is a social construct. Gender is actually something, just like, listen, Male anatomy or female anatomy is nothing more than anatomy. It's just like, like, just like you know, the, the shape of your ear. You know, it doesn't matter. If you have a penis or a vagina, it doesn't really shape who you are. It doesn't really matter. Everyone's different. So we should push back on that. And he is so convinced of this that he finds a young couple who has twins, the Reamer twins. You can Google them. The Reamer twins are twin identical boys who are, they are, they're having a dysfunction where they can't urinate properly. And at seven months old, there's a surgery done to do a, a, a unique form of circumcision that would help correct the urination problem these two boys were having. And during the surgery, one of the surgeries was botched, and it destroyed one of the boys' male penis. And so uh, um, John Money finds this family and says to them, hey, listen, why don't we take the boy whose penis was destroyed in the surgery and let's make him a girl, let's make him Brenda, and let's raise 
one is your twin boys is a boy and the other is a girl, and we'll never tell anyone, and it'll, it'll prove to the world that gender is a made-up thing. You can just make whoever you want. And if you read the story, in essence, the end of the story is, actually, that's not the case. Brenda always knew she was a boy. She, never, she, she was more masculine. She, wanted to do, she couldn't do feminine things. She refused to. And eventually in her 30s, in his, in his 30s, he killed himself and his brother did as well. John Money's experiments have been wildly discredited. And yet, that idea reigns supreme in North America today. In the 1960s, Philip Reif was saying, here's what's going to happen. The society is going to develop into this thing where the where the therapeutic self is going to reign. He wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic Self. And he says this, the therapeutic self is this, is where people live in life and they expect the world to be therapy to them. And anything in the world that causes me harm must change. So we've gone from mimetic society where we adhere to this to the poetic society where we don't adhere to anything to now the therapeutic triumph where you must adhere to me. I am the center thing that matters most in this society. And you better adhere to me. And if you don't adhere to me, then you're a bigot and we need to disenfranchise you or get rid of you from society. So the romantic self, the plastic self, and the sexualized self, they collide along with emotivism to create the therapeutic self, which is where we are today. And I am six minutes over, so I'm going to go very fast. Let me give you four things to think about as we consider these things. Number one, pray. If you don't pray for our nation and for peoples around the world every day, I would exhort you to do that. 15 different times in the Bible, we are given a model of someone praying for the nation in which they live. 15 times. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, pray for leaders and kings so that things may go well. In Proverbs 11, it tells us that the nation needs advisors. So I pray, my wife and I, we pray almost every day for our nation. I pray for President Biden. I disagree with his politics. I still pray for him. I pray for him regularly. I pray that God would bring advisors. I pray that, he would, that God would show him that he is wrong on his view of, of the unborn. I pray those things regularly. If you are not praying for your nation and praying against these things, I exhort you, I beg you, I implore you, pray every day. Pray. Number two, we must be convinced of truth. And if you're not convinced of truth, I would, I, would, I would beg you, implore you, exhort you to do the research. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. There are only two genders, two sexes, and sex and gender go hand in hand. They, they cannot separate those two. You are not what you feel. If you're not convinced of that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and I encourage you to do the research to make sure you know that, that is the truth. Number three is to speak truth when you're invited to do so. Speak truth. A couple places you're invited regularly. One, the voting booth. We're always invited to, as Americans. Not everyone has that right, but we're invited to speak at the voting booth. So I encourage you to do that. One-on-one -on -one conversations, school board meetings, small groups, whatever. There's always opportunities for you to speak. And I would encourage you to do that. And be, not be afraid to say that which is true. When someone comes to me and says, I, I'm a woman and trapped in the man's body, I would say, no, you were a man because you were born male. You are a man and you're experiencing gender dysphoria. And it is a mental illness. Now that's going to be probably illegal in most parts of the world at some point in my lifetime to say that. But it is the true statement. It is a mental illness. 
It is not mean to say that. It is compassionate. If someone came to me and had liver disease, and he said, I, you know, I'm, I got liver disease, but I don't, I don't know that I actually believe it's an illness. It would be unloving for me to tell them, no, you're right, you don't have liver disease. In the same way, if someone is experiencing gender dysphoria, it is unloving for me not to tell them. It's unloving. It's a mental illness. What about, I mean, what about transracial? I mean, that, that could be a thing. What about transable? Right now, there are people in America who are identifying as transable, meaning they believe that you're disabled. They're born abled, so they're having surgeries to cut off their arms because they identify as disabled. Why not pedophilia? What? The man who likes little boys or likes little girls, why are they wrong? Like, if, you feel, if what you feel is right, then whatever you feel is right. But I'm willing to say, no, no. Actually, you liking that little boy and wanting to be, be attractive is wrong. That's a broken desire. It's a product of sin. And God can forgive you. The gospel, in, God, in the gospel, there is hope. Do not succumb to the emotivist command. The emotivist command is, do not tell me what's right or wrong. Just tell me what your preference is. Do not succumb to the emotivist command. Note, side note, John the Baptist did not fall to the emotivist command. He had the audacity to tell someone who they could or could not marry. And it got him beheaded. So when you speak truth, just know it may get you beheaded. And that's okay. Number four, the last thing is this, is to be kind. Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.5. Correct your opponents with gentleness so that God may perhaps grant them the gift of repentance. Paul is saying when you are kind to people, not their definition of kindness, right? They're, bless you. They're, they're going to say being kind is telling me that I am what I feel. It's actually kind to tell that person with gentleness, but directness, I love you, and I love you enough to tell you, actually, you're experiencing gender dysphoria. I love you enough to tell you, as a man, it is wrong and it is against what God desires for you. It will be harmful for you as a man to have sex with another man. I implore you, and to do that with gentleness. And as I do that with gentleness, God just may grant to him the gift of repentance and draw that man to, to himself. Let's pray.